in the last 30 years, Dallas police has been involved in a, in a lethal force uh, encounter inside the structure on a dynamic search warrant. One in almost 30 years. Yet every other shooting that Dallas SWAT has been involved in has been a surrounding call out, barricaded person type call. So for our history, we run seven or so dynamic warrant service operations to every one surrounding call out. And yet out of all those numbers, only one of the seven, per, you know, ratio, the dynamic search warrants, have, have resulted in lethal force being used by us. Yet the smaller percentage of the operations account for over 90% of all use of force. Selection is key. It is. You have to. You have. You, you got to pick good people. And you got to train them. And you have to train, and you have to train, and you have to train. You can, I've been here 17 years. We're still training. We're still trying to get better. you got to go out there and practice. You have to train and train and train. And the new guys coming in, you've got to show them not only how to do it, but why you need to do it and how to keep that going. But we do everything we can to reduce or mitigate that, you know, the danger. There's a risk in any course that we follow, but every lesson of history tells us that the greater risk lies in appeasement. This is what some well-meaning people refuse to acknowledge. When we give in to pressure, when their policies of accommodation is appeasement, if we continue to accommodate, continue to retreat, eventually we will face the ultimate demand. What then? We just refuse to conduct any kind of operation because of the potential danger that someone may get hurt? When the anti-police woke mob goes back and tells their people that they know what our response will be, they know that we are retreating under pressure till one day we will not have any more ground to give up. They will simply not just quit. As long as they believe they can manipulate the situation, the narrative, they will keep coming. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assist the Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community. And now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree, and we all make mistakes. But together we can grow, we can heal. And we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Welcome back, BTD, Bridging the Divide Nation, here with Misty. Danny and Randy. We have a, a little bit of a different format today for the show. We got a, a very special guest here with us. Um, he's been with the Dallas Police Department for 22 years. It seems like you've been here longer than that, but 22 years. He's been in SWAT for 17, and he's been one of our assistant squad leaders in SWAT for over seven years. I've had the pleasure of working with him as a uh, former squad mate, as an individual who's helped groom younger SWAT people up uh, and uh, thoroughly enjoyed having him as a uh, squad mate, a uh, peer on the police department, and a friend. Uh, without further ado, Matt Smith, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, and Matt, uh, just so the audience knows, we obviously know, but we'd like to get into the discussion at a national level of the no-knock warrants that police teams or tactical teams have been 
utilizing and the controversy surrounding them. And I know you being a member of the SWAT team, spending a lot of time really looking into all this with the data and the numbers and police administrations and the teams, um, that you'd be a good person to have on to have this discussion. So kind of just having an open forum, essentially talking about all this. But if you would, maybe just give us a background of your career here. This is also specifically with SWAT and SWAT training and SWAT team operations. Yeah, sure. Um, no, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Big part of Dallas SWAT is warrant service with like, like a lot of teams in the nation. And when you come over here as a new guy, you learn very quickly that um, there's a way to do things that you have to learn. You have to go about a certain way of demonstrating a proficiency. There's a level of an expectation of how to do that. And uh, as anybody who's been doing this division knows that we're very fortunate. We had a lot of great people that were there when we came over. You know, when there were senior guys that had a lot of experience, you know, and a lot of, you know, uh, ability to train and leadership they can show you okay we're going to show you how to do this job we're going to teach you not only how to do it but why we do it and the, the why behind a lot of it and i think that really matters because you can show somebody how to perform a certain function but when you're not there is, are they just doing muscle memory they just are they just going off with what they were shown or do they understand it do they learn it and i think that's one of the big things that we have going for us here and that I've tried to do myself and going forward and helping out other officers, whether it be Dallas or other, is we're going to show you something and we're going to explain to you why it works or how you do it and do it all and all the the minutia behind it. So when they go out into, you know, into the live world, they're able to use some of that to help themselves. And so going into training, I think that's a big thing that helped us come to come along to be part of an, you know, of the team to be an asset is that you learn how to do things correctly, you know, working in a, as a team towards the successful mission completion and not just coming in and just doing it haphazardly or just because somebody showed you one way to do it. Is that, if that makes sense? Yeah, it does. So uh, go ahead, Misty. Well, for our listeners out there, um, Dallas is a full-time team. So explain to our listeners the difference between a full-time and a part-time team because the majority of our SWAT teams um, are part-time. So explain the difference to our listeners so they understand. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, Dallas, you know, being a large metropolitan city is, you know, by far is in the minority as far as just departments in general. You know, majority of te- uh, departments are not as big as Dallas. I think we're like the eighth or ninth largest department in the country. Uh, so you have manpower. You have resources that are available to you. Uh, the vast majority of SWAT teams in the nation are not a what you consider a full-time team. That is not their primary and pretty much their whole role of the day. Most of them are uh, have other jobs, other ancillary – or the SWAT teams actually their ancillary role to the, the department. They're a detective. They're in patrol. They – you know, maybe a supervisor in homicide or something like that, where they, if they have to go and do something that's SWAT related, you know, that's what they're there for, but it is not their primary function on the department. Whereas, you know, Dallas is, you know, fortunate where we, yeah, we are considered a full-time team where all day, every day, we're either performing SWAT operations or we're trying to train and get better at them. If that helps, you know, makes people understand that. But but we're definitely in the minority as far as that is not that is not what most people you know have the luxury of doing. Yeah. So and I think those 
two, two components right there are the big differentiating elements is the training and then the full-time experience or, or the quantity or what some would say operational tempo. So just to give an idea, how would you define operational tempo or the amount of work that Dallas SWAT does, especially compared to other teams, either other large city teams in the U.S. or even just your common law enforcement, midsize municipality? Yeah, well, when you talk to other officers from other agencies that come in to do the training, as you all know, you know, we do a lot of training with other agencies. They're doing the same type of work. When I say that, you know, they're doing warrant service, which is by far the bulk of what most SWAT teams do. Now, the ratio of what they do depends. Again, is it a is it a smaller city? Is it a rural urban area or a, or a rural area versus an urban area city? You know, um, and then and then each each department is kind of like a family. You have certain little nuances that are in inherent to that department about how they do things. Some of them maybe run more operations than other teams do. Uh, but like for here, there's no question that, you know, in my career, that the, the large bulk of the work that we have done is warrant service. And we do them for Dallas Police Department. We do them for FBI, DEA, ATF, uh, Secret Service. You know, we've done them for Texas DPS. We've done them for other, uh, other states have called and said, hey, we need this operation done. And we've gone all over the city of Dallas. We've gone into surrounding cities. Suburbs. Suburbs yeah. because it's either, hey, it, the the location is so inherently dangerous. The suspect we're going after. There's so many you know factors that go along with it, like a threat assessment on the location itself. That a lot of the smaller agencies they understand that hey that this is this is above our scope. We so we need to bring in you know people that have the experience, the op, you know, the operators, the number of bodies they can throw at it, and then equipment to do it. And you know when you look at that. Um, you know, over my career, you know, it's over the whole amount of operations, just you know, about seventeen hundred live operations in my career so far, and uh, without a doubt, you know, the bulk of that has been warrant service, and, and, and of those warrant service, the bulk of that is a dynamic warrant service, mm-hmm. I and mean, where a lot of that being the so-called no no not warrants. Yeah. So, just to give the audience a, a better number, what would you say an average is for you? And your team on Dallas SWAT? Well, uh, for last year, uh, Dallas SWAT, we uh, performed 160, I think, 165 warrant operations. Now, not every one of those are a dynamic or no-knock you know, warrant, and there's there's differences there. But over, you know, but we average about 100 or so a year for us, and that's been the average for, for my career for over the 17 years, about 100 or so each year. So I think in general, there is a misunderstanding by the public of what a no-knock warrant is. And not only is it a misperception of terminology, but also it could even be a misapplication of the term by our own law enforcement agencies when they put out information. And perhaps we do a poor job educating the public as well. So let's hear from you on what is a no-knock warrant? What are they? Why do we even have them, and how does law enforcement go about getting them? Well, first of all, a no-knock warrant is not a tactic. A no-knock is, is, is a term used, a legal term used in the warrant that a detective would put in there. Um, when you look at it, it is put in there because the detectives are saying there's a chance of the evidence to be destroyed or other factors that would put the officers at a higher 
you know, level of danger. And so everybody wants to say, well, they're in there just trying to seize evidence. Well, that could be the thing. But for us, and, you know, by far the vast majority of my career, uh, the the evidence is obviously that's the reason why you're there, you know, for part of it. Uh, but, you know, the safety of not only the officers planning it, but the people that are inside, the suspects, we take that into consideration as well. And then also uh, the surrounding area. You know, we do a lot of warrant service in apartments, you know, complexes, you know, and uh, you cannot mitigate all that danger to everybody around there. And so, you know, when we talk about having a no-knock exception, a no-knock clause in the warrant, um, that it's supposed to, you know, be able to, if you read what Texas law says, is that it allows you to breach and enter without announcing. So you're not giving away your presence. Well, we've never done that. We always announce before we're breaching. And you say at, we as in Dallas, a, Dallas SWAT? As in Dallas PD, as, as Dallas PD SWAT. Um, I can't comment about what everybody else does. Uh, you see videos online, and it's hard without the c- complete context to make a ruling on what they're doing this right or this is wrong. I wouldn't want somebody to do that to us without you know discussing it with us first. Uh, but from the day I got here, it was always we will not be just breaching and just running in there. We there's a we have a method to how we're going to, you know, go after this particular, you know, structure or this or this person inside there. Um, but we are not going to just all of a sudden appear inside their room, you know, with them without announcing, without doing this. We've gone to great lengths to talk about that. And that was one of the things that was brought up when in 2007 when Lieutenant uh, Carlton Marshall was shot. Uh, that was their def- their whole defense was they did not know the Dallas Police Department was there. That that was not us. They thought they were getting robbed. And we had a lady who was three doors down, who said that she had heard, you know, loud you know voices and yelling, and she heard Dallas Police mentioned many many times before the gunshot went off. And it was the only shot that was fired was one that when she shot him. And so. It was not like we were there and sneaking in there and they didn't have the ability to understand what was going on. They did. And I think what happens is is it it gets labeled no knock and they think everybody's just running in there not saying anything and they're not telling them that they're the police or giving people an opportunity to respond when that is absolutely not the case and the vast majority of, of what I what I see other agencies doing from what I've been told and it's certainly nothing we've ever done. Whoever the investigator is, is usually the one who's going to write such a warrant and be the affiant for the affidavit. And they're going to put in the details of why they believe this location needs to have a no-knock served warrant. And usually, like Matt's saying, it's it's for the conducting the service of the warrant in such a matter that will help officers um, with a safety issue. So I think the whoever's writing the warrant will probably put things like, well, there's surveillance on the house. And so that makes it a problem for us in case they want to further barricade themselves, get in a fortified position or arm themselves. Good eyes. Good eyes. There's also the destruction of evidence. And I think a big one for us on Dallas SWAT, um, sometimes we will request that the investigators write a no-knock on these warrants is because the location really isn't accessible to completely surround and have this slow, methodical progression of work to serve the warrant. And it puts us in dangerous positions. For example, a third-story apartment with a single door as an entry point and maybe one or two windows where we're forced to be standing in front of those doors and windows for a length of amount of time. Well, you, you know, as I was mentioning earlier, you know, 
whenever you're asked to perform a warrant service operation, you take it as an individual at that location, and you take in, into account that particular suspect or suspects. It's, there's no cookie-cutter approach. Mm-hmm. You go out there, and you have a location assessment, and you have a suspect assessment. And anybody that has done those realizes it didn't take very long to realize this one's a little bit unique because of the stairs going up to here or the fence or like the cameras or the barricades. And we have tremendous barricades in this city. And we, you know, we've, we've had people come up and see pictures of what we go against. And they're like, I've never seen anything like that. I'm like, we see this every day. You know, you go to West Dallas and you see, you know, just some of the biggest in you know, still bars. Yes. Welded I mean, onto over doors. There's a guy out there that's doing a good job for those guys. Behind windows. Yes. Yeah. And uh, we've had, you know, a door that had three quarter inch uh, or three different, there were quarter inch metal pipes slid in behind brackets that there was no way you were going to defeat that with any kind of manual breaching or even explosive breaching for that matter. You'd have to drive a truck through that to get that. And it was done that way deliberately, one, to keep us out, but it also, you know, is, is their way of trying to protect themselves from other dope dealers. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I can't tell you how many times we've had people that were suspects that were being arrested and said, I'm just glad it was y'all and I wasn't getting robbed. You know, and I think that's one of the reasons that uh, we've been successful as far as the really the limited amount of use of force we've had to do on this because we do announce is because we do bring a lot of officers to the operation and we just take away any chance or any hope of them thinking about trying to escape or try to repel us and they go hey i i want to i want to get through this i want to make it i'm the best thing for me to do is surrender right now Mm -hmm. and uh, we apply very little use of force on our operations and uh, especially comparison to other teams uh, as far as you know where they say well we don't you know we do a lot of of surrounding callouts, and we've been involved in this many shootings. And it, what, the, what's a surrounding callout? Well, the surrounding callout is that they, again, is if you can do that. To your point, like if it's a third floor apartment, you can't surround it all. You know, if it's right in the middle of the of the hallway, you got eight doors on either side of it. You can't do that. Or here we have a lot of locations where there's no alleyway in the back. You cannot get to that person's backyard to surround them, to, you know, to have officers on the corners of the property to prevent escape. It's hard to get there. Some of them, you cannot do that. You can't go through other people's yards. You can't get armor back there. So you can't put officers in harm's way standing behind a, a small tree or shed because that person can take shots at them from inside a house, and there's no way to, you know, you can't defend against that. And uh, when you look at the ratio of police-involved shootings with, when it comes relates to SWAT teams, and in, in Dallas's PD is, is no different. That one in the last thirty years, Dallas police has been involved in a in a lethal force uh, encounter inside the structure on a dynamic search warrant. One in almost thirty years. Yet every other shooting that Dallas SWAT has been involved in has been a surrounding call out, barricaded person type call. And a lot of those, that person is trying to make a break for, trying to escape. There's been several incidents where Dallas SWAT has had to use lethal force on somebody outside the structure or outside the vehicle because they were trying to escape. And so when they feel like they have the opportunity to try to be fight or flight or try to get away, they take it. Whereas on a lot of the dynamic search warrants that are being performed with a no-knock clause in it that allows you to move in there rapidly to start taking ground from them and to confront them and secure them, it almost never happens. Yet the ratio is about seven to one. So for our history, we run seven or so dynamic warrant service 
operations to every one surrounding call-out, historically. And yet, out of all those numbers, only one of the seven, per, you know, ratio, the dynamic search warrants, have, have resulted in lethal force being used by us. Yet, the smaller percentage of the operations account for over 90% of all use of force. Yeah, so I guess I'll summarize that from what I think you're saying is that we run two different styles, which would be dynamic or a slow methodical, which would be a surround and call out where we surround the structure, announce, and then slowly work through a progression as needed based on the kind of response we're getting from the suspects inside. Right. So you're saying that the dynamic search warrants aid us in locking down suspects quicker before they have a chance to think, arm themselves, fortify themselves more, and help eliminate us being in exposed positions that could compromise our safety. And we've only had one shooting in 30 years on a a dynamic no-knock search warrant. Right, where we shot somebody inside the structure. And then uh, the least amount we do are the surrounding callouts mm-hmm. and those are the ones that make up 90 percent of oh, yeah. the police shootings and it's not and that's out and it's just dallas you know the swat i mean that's especially larger urban teams they all have similar numbers and you talk to garland in 30 years they've never shot and they dark and garland's pd runs a lot of uh, warrant operations their swat team they've never shot anybody inside a structure on a dynamic search warrant Every shooting that their SWAT team has been involved in has been on the outside perimeter on a surrounding call-out. Every one of them. Talk to people that I know, that know officers in uh, LAPD. They, they think they had one in 18 years. Yet, and they're, of course, you can remember, they're five times the size. I mean, they're, they're, they're a much bigger department than us and the amount of people. They run a lot more operations, and it, it's still the ratio is the same. Mm-hmm. That, without a doubt, that warrant service constitutes the bulk of SWAT work, and yet it accounts for almost... It, just such a small percentage of the opera of the operations where lethal force is used yet when it does happen it becomes this you know big thing nobody recognizes that okay th- that may have happened today but for the last however many years they were doing this three times a day and it never happens yeah so it's interesting that you're putting this perspective on it and yet we have this huge controversy right now across the country yeah. and we've had these police teams serving what we say or they say are no-knock warrants that have ended in misfortune. Yeah. So two things. I wanted to go back real quick to what you were just saying. And I think this is going to tie right into what we're talking about. Because obviously with anything with law enforcement these days, it has a lot of our uh, a lot of our decision-making skills, uh, whether that be from administrative or just from perspective, it, uh, national narrative is what dictates how we move, right? Mm. Um, which is unfortunate because just like anything else, uh, we, we speak of dynamics. Law enforcement in general is very dynamic. But we go back to we're talking about these no-knock warrants as you get into it. And there's two things I want people to, to remember is the psychological overload that individuals receive, which is why we are able to be so successful in not having any type of a lethal force use inside of a residence when we're serving a dynamic search warrant or no-knock warrant, right? psychologically these tactics are not just for us to willy-nilly run through a home and do what we want to do to preserve evidence so on and so forth there is a psychological factor and you'll get into it with the OODA loop I'm sure but as we get into that and then also uh, you're talking about the numbers for force on us towards suspect uh, force on uh, off uh, the suspect toward officer right mm-hmm. do, do you have those numbers I mean we've we've been fortunate I know that's yeah, 
that and yeah, that those numbers would be good if we just like just use of forces and yeah, not deadly forces. Our use safety. Of force. Yeah, we yeah. always argue with people about our safety, mm -hmm. and it's like, oh, they're just trying to get one over on us, and they're just trying to do what they want to do. But no, we go back and look at numbers of how many officers we've had injured on, not from them tripping, falling, some some type of misfortunate accident, but the actual suspect forcing lethal force toward us. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, right. obviously. If we force it onto somebody else, then there was a reason for it. But our safety comes in that, right? We overwhelm these structures with numbers, with psychological overload. And, and for us, that works in our favor. Sure. Well, I think that, uh, it's it, again, you take into account the safety of all persons involved, but that also includes us. So to sit there and say, well, this operation is, is more dangerous for the suspects. Well, first of all, that's not true. And we have data to show that. But it also, to your point, is safer for us. And so some of the stats that I pulled up, and, of course, going to the, on the FBI's webpage, is that, that thing's hard to navigate trying to get data. But when they showed, you know, when uh, from 2015, 2019, 257 officers killed felonously in the line of duty. Uh, yet only uh, out of that, the, uh, the uh, eight were killed in a tactical situation. And it doesn't differentiate how that tactical situation was, but yet 25 were involved, were killed in domestic violence. Okay, so three times as many officers were killed in that, in that time span answering family violence disturbance calls. I don't see any department coming in and saying, we're not going to go to those calls anymore. They're not going to mandate that we, we don't do that, right? You cannot legislate the danger out of this job. We all understand that. You have a you have body armor, you have a gun, we give you training. We know that going in. Nobody is, understands the risk on any kind of SWAT operation more than the SWAT operators themselves. And yet we have people that are in positions, some of them are never even police, they have never done that job. They have no concept of operations, if you will, on how that operation takes away their 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 want to repel us or to fight mm -hmm. back against gangs, is what you're trying to get at. And so when you have, you know, the the data to show will you run this many operations over now it's not just one year or two years this is over a extended period of time we use very little force against a suspect on warrants yeah you just take just take one it, decade yeah if you it, average 150 if we did 150 operations a year narcotic service warrants or whatever type of hazardous search warrant we mm -hmm. would conduct you take it over 10 years so i mean think of that we're now we're over a thousand mm -hmm. and yet we don't, we don't have and any I, I think a lot of that has to do with they are being run dynamic. So if you run dynamic, you lock those suspects down quicker before they have a chance to act. That prevents them from using force against us, and then that prevents us also from having to take force against them. Well, you can use any terms. You can use just these key phrases, action versus reaction. That's absolutely in play here. The OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, and act. And boy, that was an Air Force colonel that came up with that, and that was about fighter pilots being able to you know, keep situational awareness and observe this, you know, the the enemy, orientate to where they are and decide to either fight them or to try to run from them, you know, in a, in a dogfight. Well, it's, it's very, very applicable to here. We've had many suspects over the years tell us, I, I, I didn't know what was going on. I was just so overwhelmed. You know, they may not use that word or you, they sometimes use other words you don't know what's necessary to say, but they are so overwhelmed with the sheer you know, speed, surprise, and balance action, that shock and awe, if you will, that they don't have the ability to fight back. As y'all know, I have, you know, we all have confronted many of suspects sitting on guns or laying right next to them. Mm -hmm. uh, we had three in an apartment complex that, 
you were with us, and there was three of them on the couch, and there was two guns in between. All three of them had access to that gun. It was right between their legs. You remember that mm-hmm. couch? Yeah, channel two. Yep, yep, right there. All right off a roll, and they—they're all just—they all had their hands up, and they wanted nothing to do with it because they knew that there was no chance of them to be able to go for that gun. Yet, if you surround it, you call out, they get a plan together. They try to embolden themselves to, okay, how can we fight back? How can we try to escape? How do we repel these guys? We've had uh, persons on the side of surrounding call out that wanted to surrender, and the suspect that was inside goes, no, you're not surrendering. You're not giving up. And now they turn into a hostage Hostage because – I don't want to go back to prison and you want to just go out there and just survive, you know, and get out of here because they're going to let you go. They're here for me, but I'm not going to give you up and let you go out there. And so we've had that turn into where they turned them into hostages. And so that's not always the case, obviously, but those are the things that you have to, we, the SWAT team has to take into account every operation. This is not something you just show up, you got a bunch of guys and go hit the door. And I know I'm telling y'all that you already know that, but for the people out there don't understand this, these are, deliberately planned operations that take into account many, many factors. You know, you have the safety of the officers. You have the safety of the suspects inside. You have the safety of the surrounding community. Mm-hmm. Because now, it, nowadays, everybody shows up with a phone, wants to live feed, you know, and Zoom and, and get on all the smash the topic and all that. They want to show that. We've had to run people off that were behind us because, one, they're in the field of fire and it's dangerous for them. But then you don't really know whose side they're on. And you have to be accountable, you know. Have to be hold them accountable that they're not behind you because we've had a, we've had people shoot out, you know, up there in the air near us because they're not happy that we're there. And so these surround and call out operations, they're they're labor intensive. They require more manpower almost every time, guaranteed. They take longer, and then depending on where you are, you can do a tremendous amount of of rerouting traffic, you know, and pushing people around. And not to say that you do it, you wouldn't do it just because of that, but these are all factors that we take into account. There are a tremendous amount of schools and daycares in the city of Dallas, you know, and how many times have we, you know, pull up a house and go, where's that location? Where's the nearest school? The nearest school is two blocks away, or there's a daycare right there. Mm-hmm. And so we take into account all of that long before we ever get to that structure. And I don't think a lot of people understand that, that all those mitigating issues that go along with that play into what plan we come up with. We don't walk in there going, Hey, we're just going to do this this way willy nilly, like you were saying, and just run it. And no, there, there, that may be a no, not clause in there. We're going to perform that operation. The way we see fit is the safest way for everybody. So I don't know if that answers what you're trying to say. Yeah. I mean, it's, it shores it up. And as you go on to what Danny was talking about, it's the same thing. We, we could counterfeit everything and say, well, we know, as individuals who've been in SWAT, and especially if you're in a supervisory role or a leadership role, you know that you have to take into account the many different options we have. We have a lot of options. We're very fortunate we have a lot right. of options. We have a, we, we have a very large team. That's very small, but it's very large compared to some places that have maybe 10 people that show up for a, a call-out or a warrant service. But point being is not everything ends in a dynamic search warrant. We also know that we take into account the main goal and concept is how do we – how do we take apart this structure in the most safest manner yeah. for everybody involved, the community, the individuals inside, obviously the officers. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot that goes into that. And it's not to just say what, you know, uh, everything needs to be a, knock, a no knock, you know, but there are times that, as we're saying, that these things are have been a proven tactic that is not only safe, 
but uh, very successful in in nature just for everyone involved, even those indirectly involved. I mean, we've shut down neighborhoods for call-outs, you know, and that's not to say, oh, well, we should just do a dynamic warrant, but it's there's a lot that goes into each operation, and I don't think people also understand is, and you'll get into it, is, is the threat assessment. I know we're, we, we became more vocal on that when things, this isn't the first time this concept has come up about no-knock warrants, right? I mean, it's been, you talked about Carlton Marshall, what happened after that? That changed the way we serviced uh, early morning call-outs yeah. for, the, for the rest of our history, right? Sure. Um, but there were times that we were able to, to reverse that based on the threat assessment we gave uh, for that consideration. So, The NTOA, the National Tactical Officer Association, which is the professional organization, I guess, for, you'd say, tactical teams or SWAT teams, uh, came out recently last week and made a stance on no-knock warrants, essentially saying that going now with the trends in policing these days, they don't see how this is any benefit to law enforcement. Um, so they released that statement in teams on the Dallas Police Department, SWAT, narcotics, um, teams in our Metroplex definitely had an opinion on this. I'm going to read something that you wrote, Matt. Um, I think you kind of made a public statement out to a bunch of people, and this is what you wrote. The NTOA has given into the woke mob. Instead of recognizing that no-knock warrants are like any other police operation, deliberate training, careful preparation, efficient execution, and legitimate critique is how any operation should be performed. Do not believe any data they give you. We have over 30 years of data that not only substantiates the overwhelming high rate of success of dynamic no-knock warrant service, but also shows that the vast majority of deadly force incidents come in other types of operations. You are being lied to all to satisfy the special interest groups because of their desire to do anything that takes away any effective tool for law enforcement. There is a large number of teams performing no-knock warrants that really need to go back and reevaluate its TTPs and make a con concentrated effort to really shore up their warrant service operations. There are many teams each day out there performing these types of operations at a high rate with great success. That does not justify this knee-jerk reaction from the NTOA. And then you say, I'm happy to discuss any part of it with them at any time. They are very wrong. In a very <laughs> that, that, that ending East was Texas accent. Yeah. I was going to read it. I was going to read it with that accent. But I, I, uh, you're not going to be able to do it. Okay. So the TTPOA, the Texas Tactical Police Officer Association, which is the professional organization for Texas. I think you wrote an article for them as well. I won't read that. That's a little too lengthy for this. But just anything you want to talk about as far as statements you're making and the NTOA taking a position on this? Do you, Before you guys do that, it, do you guys have the actual the statement that the NTOA That's also out? pretty long, too, but we can, it, we can pick out, we can pick out parts from it. Is there a paraphrase? Yeah, y'all go ahead then. There, look halfway down. There's... A line there that basically says they don't see how this is going to be worth anything in the future for law enforcement. They no longer pass the, the test of tactical science risk. Yeah, tactical tactical science risk mitigation practices and liability conscious decision making. Okay. Is is it so safe that. to say they're that's a blanket statement and they're grouping us all as one? Is that safe to say? Well, it, 
when we talk about, again, they're lumping everybody together. I'll be the first one to tell you that we may make mistakes. We make them. Every professional organization does. It's how you review them and try to get better with them. I think that's something that we have done a good job at was trying to get better. And you hear people say, well, y'all need to evolve. We've done nothing but evolve since I've been there. Oh, man, have we? Okay. So and just to give a little bit <laughs> of context here, when I came over 17 years ago, we had about 60 persons. So we had really two fun- two fully functioning units. Uh, the two APCs we had didn't run. <laughs> we didn't get to use them. We didn't, you know, we didn't we have push them. them there, right? And then well, if they if they got there, they probably wouldn't start back up to get them back. You know, we had to get them towed out of there. So the APCs we had did not run. You didn't have, I mean, like there was no no uh, ballistic breaching, no explosive breaching. The one small robot thing that we had did not work. We had no surveillance options. We had nothing compared to what we have now and everything that we have gone to you know and try to facilitate that equipment was to make everybody safer is to make us safer make everybody else safer and it's done that and i think that uh, you know it that's, that stuff's expensive it costs money but uh it, everything was done to try to make everybody safer so we say that is that when when they suggest in their writings that everybody's just doing the same thing no matter what. Nobody's evolving. Nobody's adhering to any kind of new training. That they're just coming in and just rubber stamping everything. And that's that's one of the things that just really drives me crazy because I have never spoken to anybody in that organization that I know of, especially as a them representing that organization, and it's never asked me or in, in nobody that I'm aware of on our team has ever discussed with them our mode of operation as far as how we go about performing warrant services so not to say that somebody else may be doing exactly what they're suggesting or, or maybe what they're they're not doing what they're suggesting but that's not the case here i know a lot of you know different uh, agencies that i'm in contact with and i'm not going to put them out there because i don't want to speak for them but they have echoed exactly what i said and they you know said we agree with that 100 percent. and so i'll leave that is but there are teams out there there are small teams and what josh alluded to a minute ago they don't have the capabilities that we do. That's nothing against them. They never will. They have a 12-man team, okay, on a 400-man department. On a good day. Yeah, on a good day. And what is the experience? And what I think makes us or helps us to be most the most successful other than the amount of training that we get to do. And we've been fortunate as a whole. There's been times where it hasn't gone that way. But as a whole, we've had great support from the commands. Hey, we need you all to be great at what you all do. We need y'all to be great at HR, you know, operations, officer rescue operations, barricaded person operations, warrant services. We need y'all to be great at that. So go train and be great. Be good at it. A lot of those teams do not have that support or have that ability to do that. And so when we talk about what Misty said, that blanket statement, they're they're taking one or two really isolated incidents and they're trying to throw that blanket over everybody and saying, it didn't happen over here, so it's not going to happen. You look at the two uh, NYPD officers that were shot earlier this year on a domestic disturbance. You know, one was like 24 and the other one was like 27. One of them died that night and the other one died like two days later. Okay, it's, it's a tragedy. But yet, I don't think the NYPD was released any kind of statement saying, you know what, we're not going to go out to domestic uh, violence calls anymore. Yet, with them and traffic stops, 
constitute the bulk of officers that are being injured and especially that are being killed feloniously mm-hmm. are those two types of, of two types of incidents traffic stops and domestic violence you know in here in dallas what do we go on you go on sex exes all the time right that's what that is the the driving number as far as uh, calls out there is domestic disturbance calls yet and so many of the arrests are that yet we're not going to shut that down I and mean, we, we shouldn't you I'm, I'm sorry you you have to recognize that this job is there's danger to it. We try to do our very best to do this, but we just cannot close down shop. And so if you go out and do an operation and say, well, why didn't y'all do a takedown? Why didn't y'all try to do a traffic stop on them? And then they go out and try to do that, and he takes off running from them, and he wrecks out, or he <clears> jump, they jump out and do something. They go, well, why didn't y'all try to do this? Whatever. Or you have to kill them. Yeah, and you have to kill them. So whatever – Whatever scenario that is involved, when when something goes bad, all these groups come out. You know, and most of them have no idea of what we're talking about. Make a comment. Well, you should have done it the other way. That they have no idea. And I think that's what the NTOA got kind of, kind of pushed and painted into a corner because they felt like, well, we cannot say that they need to do better. Or that's what they should have said. They should have said, look, it's a viable top. It's a viable tactic. You know, dynamic warrant service. The no knocks are in there. That's a legal thing for the justice system to deal with. It's not us. To your point, Daniel, that's what the the detectives put in there. That's what the judge signs off on. So if the judge, a magistrate who is not going on the warrant with us, decided that there was enough evidence to, you know, enough reasoning to sign off on that, so he did that. So here we are. So going into the NTOA. So they put out this statement. Of course, you know, it sends out all that. And a lot of people saying something needs to be said. Well, you know, I, I thought about it, and you know, I think y'all know me well enough. It's like, okay, fine, I'll, I'll say something, you know, because and what I said is what I absolutely feel to be the truth is that it the the idea that you're going to say we just should shut down and run no more and bake in part of the problem. What they're saying, they're saying no more no knock warrants. Again, no knock is not a tactic; it is a legal term. Right. It what they if they if if they really wanted to make that statement, they should say. Y'all shouldn't be doing dynamic warrant service, and that's that's what they're really upset about. That's right? what they're worried about. These prolific events that have happened in the country with yep. these shootings—it's it's the tactic or the technique, the search technique yep. or the breaching technique or the entry technique. But you, not to stop you real quick, Matt. But you know, I, I don't—I'm not sure. I haven't had a chance to read all that, and I know the NTOA in the past they send out anything that is like a best practice, right? Mm-hmm. It's just yeah. you know an organization that gets data from everybody in the nation and sometimes outside of the uh, walls of the U.S., so on and so forth. But uh, if you take that as a best practice comment and you look at it and basically you're laying a blanket of comfort over the fact that I can say that that's a best practice, but you hit it on the head, and I think you guys will all agree, Misty and Danny, that um, and you hit it and you hit it right there, Matt, by saying the, the training, right? We're fortunate enough that we're able to conduct multiple repetitions on a regular basis. We're fortunate enough that we have a training squad. We're fortunate enough that we have places, locations. We we have a uh, we we have all these utilities for us, right? Whereas if I'm a smaller team, this may become a best practice for me because some teams I know of some they're tactical resource is somebody who was in the military which is no knock on individuals in the military but it's saying that hey he was in the military he did x y and z this is the individual that's training us now that's great there's a there's a there's a place for that and there's a practicality for it but there's also 
we're fortunate that we have a lineage of individuals who have been here with seniority to less. We send people to schools. Uh, we beg, borrow, and steal for that stuff. That's obviously something that the city can't always afford, but we've made it that way, right? And uh, that's what it comes down to is like, hey, if I'm proficient at a tactic, then this can no longer be a blanket statement or a best practice for me. Is it a consideration? 100%. It's mm-hmm. always a yes. consideration, and it has to be because we have to tactically and safely demantle a structure and how are we going to do that because once we send you guys in there then you know the supervisor out there you guys you don't see it that way but me being over there's a supervisor again i was like oh now now i'm responsible for this and it's a totally different feeling but it's a trust knowing you guys are doing your stuff right but we have to consider that so most people don't see that that there is a and i i have no clue what the uh uh, what you guys have to go through now as far as who has to approve these things. Right? And, you know, I know when I left, it was like it went all the way up one side and down the other, and it used to not be that way. But so with all that being said, I mean, I think you you hit that point right there, and, and it's really about the training. And it's about the uh, – Misty, you got great words. What's the word I'm looking for? It's the uh, – I think we're missing one, the foundation of it, and that's the selection process. Oh, Ooh. boom, right there. Ooh. starts right there too. No so. doubt. Well, and well, it's not to – get out of that thought but that's what i have right here that's what i do training I like selection drag people out of the room and, and you can see what i wrote training is the key yeah okay? training is the key that. to you can have people with their great athletes great shooters you know you know marksmen whatever you know it it, it means nothing y'all seen that right we've we've seen a lot of people come through here that are he's a good shooter or he's a good athlete or whatever it does not always equate to being able to do this job and training is you know i remember coming over and i'm like man they're gonna I'm going, they're going to kick me out here. I'd go the wrong way, or you would do this and do that. And, you're, and you realize that you've got to make those mistakes early on when it's safe in training to fix that. And it's no different than learning how to drive or doing any other job that you're being trained to do. You've got to learn it. And the only way you're going to learn it is to go out there and perform it in some kind of safe manner in training and learn from your mistakes. That is what is, no doubt in my mind, is what has helped us to be successful is that we've had the opportunity to do that, but you have somebody there, again, not just showing you how to do it, but why you do it, why we right. do it this way, or why we don't do it that way. And you know, I, many times I sit back and, you know, we'd be on a, an operation or be drawing up a warrant, you know, for an operation. I'm like, what about this? And, here, and Tim would be like, here's the eight reasons why that's a bad idea. You know? <laughs> and he was just like, one, two, like, experience. Okay, experience, because he did it forever. And now, I, you know, I, I find myself doing some of the same things now. I'm like, okay, I get what you're saying, and if that – that window was here, that'd be a great way of doing it. But we can't do that because the window is here, or whatever the case may be. And I'm just giving out ideas. And you hear yourself saying some of the same verbiage, some of the same stuff that those guys said when you were the new guy. And you're like, man, I'm, you're hoping that, you know, that you took all that in. The maturity or that progression. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and when we show up, you know, and we're drawing up, and there's a drawing on the board, and, and they're working through all that, you know, and y'all have been in there, you you know, if the two of y'all have, you know, gone with the detective and met with them and done their surveillance and drawing up a footprint of the of the location and coming up with a, a baseline of operations, and then Daniel and I walk in here and start throwing out ideas. Hey, what about this? Is that is that a gate there? Can we do this? Can we do that? And it is, even though there are people that are responsible for that particular operation, it really is a team effort coming in, coming up with ideas. And it that is that litmus test, if you will, that when it kind of runs through the filter of all of us, 
us and everybody's chiming in, giving out their ideas and then people start, you know, buying into the plan. And I think that's a big part of it is that uh, when we have these other teams come in, and those may be getting off subject to a little bit, but we have the other teams that come in, they sit in one or two guys go do it and they draw everything up and they come in and just go. And there's no buying in. There's no, you know, people have a, you know a, a commitment to the overall success of it because like well this is josh's plan you know I don't, I don't have anything to do with it whereas we go way above that you know you know this is where you're going do you understand your assignment this is what we're doing yeah every and everyone's looking at it objectively and actually trying to shoot it down yeah to find holes in it and yep. make it better oh yeah and if you've got a solid plan it'll stand up to the scrutiny and that's fine i've been on both sides where somebody's like well how about this versus that i'm like okay i get that in, that's a great question, but not going by with the detectives and doing the surveillance. Let me tell you the reason why we can't do it, because there's a culvert there that you cannot get the truck through or whatever. Or like, you know what? I didn't think about that. That's a great idea. Let's do that. And that comes from experience and comes from reps and all that. And so when we talk about best practices, to your point, these, some of these smaller teams, the last thing I want to do is pick on them or seem like we're going sure. after them. I do not yes. want that because, again, I wouldn't want them to do that to us. But they have to, again, if, if, if something goes wrong – they have to be they they got to be accountable to whatever they're doing. Same thing with us. I'm not going to try to blame somebody else if we do something wrong or something goes wrong with us. However, they got to be able to look at themselves internally and say, "Are we capable of doing this? Is there a better way of doing it?" And we do the same thing. We've come in and go, "Hey, we need to wait until two o'clock to do this, or we need to wait till ten o'clock because of school or 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 whatever." You know, and those those things that go into it. And when again back to that blanket statement that they made is that when they say this, it's almost like saying you're not capable of policing yourselves or you're not capable of doing the work to ensure that's not going to happen, so we're going to do it for you. And I think that's a big part of the pushback there is, is that people say, no, we're, we've been doing this for a long time, and we have great success with it. And there's many different agencies that have chimed in, large and small. So it's not just a large urban like us, uh, but it's, it's you know, it's – not what you're doing is how you're doing it, if that makes sense. Yeah, so maybe you can go through these three with us. So that being said, getting specific on training, teams can't make blanket statements for every law enforcement agency. Um, maybe let's go through these three that are big in the U.S. and then talk about what you think may have gone wrong and why they are such a big deal now. So going back to March 2020, Brianna Taylor you're you're pretty informed on a lot of these. What happened with the Breonna Taylor? Well, again, anything that comes up, you try to be professional and try to be somewhat, you know, have an understanding of what happened based on what you could do. Again, I've never talked to anybody at any of these agencies. I've never debriefed anybody. So I'm just going by what you pick up in interviews or when the body-worn cameras are released or, you know, what you try to read and you try to look between the lines and try to filter for yourself. Uh, but based on the Breonna Taylor – Again, that was two locations involved in that night. The SWAT team was at a different location performing a warrant service, and it went off, you know, pretty much no issues. Now, the person they were looking for was not there. He was actually at this other apartment where Brianna was and where the the group of narcotics detectives had, had gone to check on that location. You go back and listen. They weren't wearing body-worn cameras. The SWAT team was at the other location, but the, the narcotics detectives weren't. But going by their testimony, what people saw there, and then what the body-worn camera shows later when the SWAT team showed up after the incident. That warrant, I never saw it, but it was it was classified as a no-not warrant. 
that wanted her because it was written in the warrant because it was written that way but you go back and listen to what even the just the citizens inside the apartment complex they they did not breach the door and just go they knocked on the door they tried to get their attention because it was dark so they knocked and they knocked they knocked and knocked on the door several times and in in the in the the suspect the who they're looking for his own you know uh, interview later he said that we heard them knocking on the door and we're like, who is it? And this is this is what he is saying from the bedroom. And they're like, who is it? Because they weren't expecting anybody. So right then and there, we know it was not a dynamic no-knock search warrant based on what he just said right mm-hmm. there. Yes. And that corresponds to what the narcotics set, officer said they did or, in this case, did not do. So they knocked on the door trying to get their attention, trying to get them to come to the door. Even though they had a no-knock clause in the warrant, they did not perform it as such. They didn't utilize it at they all. They didn't utilize it at all, but yet – what is the media and how is it painted that she was killed while they were conducting a no-knock warrant? It's absolutely not true. Yeah. So in that, in that, there's there's no argument in that. So uh, they breached the door after nobody comes to it. for, And they say about 45 seconds is what the detective said. So 45 seconds on a small one-bedroom apartment. It didn't take long to walk across that. You know, It's 20 feet at the max. Sorry, 20 feet across that way. So it doesn't take long to, you know, it's just not a large house. So they felt at that time that that was long enough for if somebody was going to come to the door, they didn't do it. So they breached the door but the, and they did not make entry into the door. They were standing at the threshold announcing, trying to get, you know, make so they're contact. working through progressions working rather through, than doing a dynamic entry. Yes. It's really like a surround and call out. They're surrounding it. Yep. They're trying to announce and call them out and then slowly working through progressions. They did exactly what a lot of the new, what they're, what they're being called to do. The operation that they performed and how they performed it is what they want you to do now. The it's what the NTO is That's what saying. they're suggesting yeah. you should do because it's safer than doing a no-knock dynamic warrant, yet that's exactly what they did. Yes. And so and, but, and they won't bring that up. They won't talk about that. And so he comes to the door. He says, this again, this is the suspect in his interview, says, I didn't know who it was, so I fired one around at them. Okay. I don't know. If anybody that's going to sit there and say, well, we just uh, – somebody broke into my house. I just shot one around at them. Then I wanted to find out who they were. That's what he said. He says he fired one around. After the round he fired, it hits the officer at the door, hits him in the leg. He falls down. Then they start – the officers that were with him start shooting into the structure. They, I think – what I what I saw again this is not an official finding from the department. But what I found online is that the number they believe that those officers fired were thirty two rounds by three different officers. Mm-hmm. One, the one officer that got shot fired one round. The follow up officer behind him shot fifteen, and then an officer who ran around, which would be back to the right, which we would call the Delta side, and fired another fifteen rounds through different windows. Now there's. There's no way you can tell me that's sound tactics, what they did there. Mm. I wasn't there to say, let me rephrase that, that going around the parking lot just indiscriminately shooting through windows and not having any kind of viable target to me is, there's no way you can say that's a viable t- uh, tactic. I think that's, you know, that was very, very bad. We'd be in a lot more shootings if we did Oh, that. absolutely. Yeah. And uh, if if we have been shot at many 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 times i can't have lost the number of times that we've been shot at on a barricaded person call out and we take that person into custody with not one shot being fired yeah. by us yeah if you it if happens you, all the time if you want lives saved or no one to get killed then you call the swat team yeah 
because we have those tools and the resources to make sure yeah. that we can do everything we can to take someone in alive. Right. I was being inside, just as a side note, we were inside an apartment one time. He shot through the right, through the wall, hit the, the panel, the body bunker panel. It fell onto us. We introduced, you know, gas, and then eventually came out. But he shot at us, but yet we didn't shoot at him So because of tactics. So that, that was a bad tactic. So they deal with that. Uh, then, of course, now you got you got an officer that's been shot, you multiple rounds being fired. They call the SWAT team in. The SWAT team leaves that other location, drives to that location, and then they come in and clear it and secure it and all that. She's already dead. She, she I think she was shot six times. It multiple rounds, you know, and they're all carrying pistols, 40 caliber pistols is what I, the evidence that I saw. And you had multiple rounds going through, you know, different walls into other apartments, you know. And uh, so you have 32 rounds shot um, by the three different officers and one by him. And you look at that and you're like, man, it's just, there's no way to cut that. It's just a bad deal all around. And uh, when you look at their tactics as far as knocking, announcing, trying to call them out, Nobody's, nobody came to the door. They breached the door, and then that's when the shooting happened. And then surrounding it. Standing surrounding firing it. Firing more rounds into yeah. it. Yeah. And then all, all these bad, bad, I guess you'd say, execution of techniques or yeah. procedures somehow now get lumped or labeled into as a no-knock. Right. And yeah. so you, it's bad tactics, It was, and, and you probably can go right back to poor or insufficient training that probably led to that, but it had nothing to do with the warrant itself. And yet – that's what's that is the forefront of every discussion is that because it was a no knock clause in the warrant, this is what you know uh, started all this to go. This wrong. Is what it had said. nothing to do with it. Yeah. yeah. Well, it also brings into consideration, and this happens quite a bit in law enforcement or just in the world in general, is uh, the whole point about the training and uh, the size of departments and the uh, the uh, fortunate utilities afforded to us as a larger department to receive this training uh, comes back to what you were just saying is that uh, I don't know so much that it's it, it's basically lumping individuals saying like hey this is this is safe because when I'm reading through this right here it's discussing no-knock warrants as somebody having a stealthy entry approach of breaching the door crossing the threshold or other covert means of access only risk the following scenarios and this is the premise, right? All right. comes down here when considering the priority and safety of life. It is difficult at best to justify or defend no-knock warrant service. Well, now we're going back into the whole aspect of, okay, well, these are not all performed that way, right? I mean, absolutely. maybe this is the way, I'm not privy to this anymore, but maybe that's the way people do things in other areas. But as, as you were just mentioning, it's, well, that's not a good practice alone on its own. So there's no argument with this right here about the safety, but to make that comment there is is pretty strong and staunch, and it's basically just taking everybody, putting them in a group. Yep. You guys are all incapable. Since these people cannot do this or there's mishaps, misfortunes, like you said, mistraining, misinformation, uh, and, and I, I hate to say this, but sometimes a lot of people get their information by what they see on TV. Sure. You know, like, hey, well, I watched them do this, so this is how we're going to do it. And again, the training aspect. Well, somebody asked me, how can you put this in context and maybe make it where it's not police-centric, the, the discussion? And I said, okay, well, look at this. If you, and I just tried to make this, if you took all the Dodge Chargers that the Dallas Police Department has as far as police cars, 
And all of a sudden, we had problems with the transmissions. And we called Dodge, and they said, well, you're the only police department having problems with these transmissions. Fort Worth has the same car. They're not having the tra- any problems with the transmissions. D- Dodge not going to say, we'll replace all your transmissions because obviously we, we did something wrong here. They're, the first thing they're going to say is, what is your maintenance? How are you maintaining these vehicles? What are you doing to them? Because you're doing something different. And that's the way that thing that should, should be looked at. It's like, okay, team, you know, SWAT team A is, is having high rate of success, having none of these issues. Instead of saying, look at team B, that's, made, that's having problems or making mistakes or having bad things going back and applying it across the board. They should say, wait a minute, let's look at what Team B is doing. Let's look at what Team A is doing. Let's compare. And then maybe saying, look, maybe if we look at this and maybe, again, it's a maintenance you know, for the Dodge cars or and for this day, it's a training issue. Let's put effort into coming up with better training to mm-hmm. show what we need to do or what's or it's not being done here. I think that I think just making that statement is just lazy, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's maybe, comfort. Yeah, maybe Team B is Dallas Police Department, and they're trying to use the Dodge Chargers as boats in Lake Ray Hubbard. I mean, it's yeah, it's, it's not like, recommended. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's in the warranty, yeah. you know. <laughs> but you know, I don't, and I, I, and that may sound like a simplistic analogy, but that's what I'm, you know. I think it's trying to put it into context yeah. that. The manufacturer not going to run and go, okay, clearly we're doing something wrong. Like, no, you, y'all are the only ones that are having these problems. So we're going to look at y'all di- you know, directly versus bringing back all these cars that we built and saying we've got to put new transmissions. I know that sounds simple, mm-hmm. but that it's kind of a trying to make an analogy where people can understand what I'm talking about. Yeah, and like back to your point, you know, it's not about kicking around uh, smaller teams by no means. There are a lot of small teams that are phenomenal at what they do. and uh, But it's, again, we're back to this – you know, like best practice comfort zone, right? You know, it's going to be easier for me to make a statement that this is probably, this is not defendable or not a good idea because there are other teams, whether they're uh, less educated, uh, ill-trained, or just decide not to do it the way they're supposed to do it. There's a lot of people that defy a lot of stuff too, you know, and it's, it's again, you're taking a group just like you mentioned and saying, okay, well, since y'all can't get it, then the rest of y'all shouldn't. And then the bad thing is, is that, they are obviously a well-respected association that provides a lot of information that uh, command staff and legal individuals are looking will, at will them seek. for guidelines. Oh, yeah. yeah, they'll that that is sought after, and it's like, whoa! Well, if this is the practice. Now we have this whole evolution again of like now we're standing here like we always have and defending something. And I don't know. It's just it's unfortunate, but that seems kind of from perspective. That's what that is. Is like, well, this is comfortable. This is the best practice. This this will take care of all this. That way, we're covered all around. Because if they come out and say, well, for some teams it's okay, and others it's not, now we have a whole new problem, right? Well, went back to what Misty said. It's, it's your. It comes back to your selection. Selection is key, you know. And uh, Paul House says selection is a never-ending process. It is. You have to. You got. You got to pick good people. And you got to train them, and you have to train, and you have to train, and you have to train. You, I've been here 17 years. We're still training. We're still trying to get better. And you just cannot rest on your laurels and say, I got this. You still go out there and do it. And uh, I think in any job, and you look at some of the best hitters in baseball, you look at – you know, you look at the quarterbacks, whatever, they're still going out there doing BP, right, the best hitters. The quarterbacks are still out there throwing passes. It's not like Tom Brady says, I don't need to practice this year. I've done all this. No, they're out there practicing. It's the same thing with us. you got to go out there and practice. You have to train and train and train. And the new guys coming in, you've got to show them not only how to do it, but why you need to do it and how to keep that going. And, 
you could take Louisville uh, PD and give them videos of, of anything the Dallas Police Department has done, and they can render, say, they need to work on that. They need to get better. And they'd probably be right. I'm not saying it's mutually exclusive just to us. Oh, we okay. make mistakes. You, you can pull up any body-worn camera and say, hey, he's he's too far left or too far right out in traffic or whatever. You know, we've all done that. You know, we've all made our mistakes. And so when I say that about that particular operation, I'm simply saying, based on what you see there, I don't think that was a bad idea. I think that was wrong to do that. doesn't mean that we're, you know, don't have fault or we haven't made our own mistakes because we have. So they can see videos of us and do the same thing. I would say, you know what, you're right. You know, we could, you know, we need to do better. So I don't want it to be whereas we're just saying we don't make mistakes and we're above reproach and we don't do that. That's not the case at all. So yeah, just want to make sure we understand that. What about – this most recent one, the February one in Minneapolis. I know we had one in January in Las Vegas where no-knock warrants were brought up and came under scrutiny. And then the most recent one was February, a month later. Um, what were the details on that? Well, in this, that one, if you go back and you can see the body-worn cam footage, they're using a key to get in there. And it's like 5 a.m., 6 a.m. in the morning. It's very early, which, again, depending on who's in there, depends on what your schedule is, there's a good chance people are asleep. Um, on a warrant, in all my years, I have never used a key to get inside on a warrant on to serve and do a warrant service. Now, there are times where we had keys on hostage rescue or barricaded person operations where we're trying to evac people out or, or sneak and sneak, sneak and tell in there because it's a different dine. It's a different operation. There's a there's a whole different. It's a different discussion altogether. Um, now, we've had open doors where we've been, we've run up to the uh, location and they're coming in or out, and we still stop at the threshold and we announce Dallas Police, Dallas Police before ever stepping in there. So when you watch the video at the Minneapolis and they're going up there, they're using the key to get in the door. They're already opened the door and they're going in as before they start announcing. Now, under the color of the law, it's permissible it's allowed mm-hmm. no knock this is no no knock. Not, no announcing and yet we have i have never been involved in any kind of operation here ever in 17 years that we've done that and so again because you're because the law allows it they're 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 doing it but is is, is that the right way to should they be doing it that way and i can tell you right now if you come up and said hey we have the key here i'd be like well at the deadbolt's thrown and engaged which surprisingly on that one it was not doesn't really do us any good so we could we could keep the keys in case we need it for later but we would not even attempt to do that again that's just my perspective on how we would handle that versus what they did they had their own reasons for doing it and that's fine but if you watch them going in the doors they're pushing the door open they're just stepping right in They're, they're announcing as they're coming in Apparently he was asleep on the couch, which is it's a simple one bedroom apartment. Straight away is the couch. It's a sectional couch, L shape. He's in there lying on that. Mm-hmm. You see the first officer come in, make a right turn, uh, going into the kitchen, which leads back to the living room, and then number two, three, and four come in and start confronting him. I think it's number the number two guy is the one that pushes right and turns back inbound to him and starts confronting him. And then the video doesn't show the shooting; they stop it right there. Yeah. That's where it is. Um, we talk about this all the time in training. Do not compress in on top of these people if you don't have to. You know, give yourself the ability to see what's going on and to do this. Again, he may be doing exactly what he was trained to do. And if you look at it from a training aspect in their department or their group, he may have done exactly what they told him to do. And and I'm not saying that that they're that he didn't do that, I don't know. But I would like to think that if I if I was coming in there and seeing that, is that yes, we would 
confront them and challenge them, but maybe you don't do that. I don't know. You know, but I, I can tell you, we would never ever just open that door up with a key and push in there and then start announcing once we're already inside. Yeah. So it's unfortunate that this happened and the public's view on this is that this must be the common practice then. Yeah. And from what I'm hearing you say, you know, the last 17 years, you've never done anything that way. I'm assuming most teams have never done anything that way. And that's why this hasn't come up as much. And it's just now come up this one time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the thing that keeps kind of reoccurring with all this then is we're back to looking specifically at isolated incidents and really going back to the training. And then like Misty said, the selection. So training and selection or perhaps a lack of or the wrong kind of training may be contributing to these outliers or these isolated incidents. Um, let's talk about the, the training aspect. I know all of us here have done a lot of teaching for the state of Texas, for the TTPOA and other SWAT teams in the region, in the state. Some of us even teach across the country, either by presenting or tactical applications. What are we seeing now with the training that we are giving to Texas SWAT teams? And what are we seeing from other Texas SWAT teams as far as practices and their amount of training and the quality of training? Well, and and one of the things that I stated in my thing for the TTPOA is that missed trainings, you almost never make a missed training day. I don't know if I've ever made a head of training day. We're like, hey, we're going to make up yeah, that right. that day we lost last Wednesday because of the yeah. operation or whatever. Yeah. It's like sleep. You never catch you up. Never, you never go back and get that. So when you have the opportunity, you've got to maximize it. And, you, and that's one of the things that I've, I've been very thankful for for here is that overall we've been allowed to have, do training and to train our, you know, and to train and get better because we need to be at that. And so a lot of teams, again – their ancillary role is SWAT. You know, they're a detective. They're in patrol. They are, you know, whatever other job they may do in the department, that is their full-time job. And then you get to go do SWAT on the side when it's needed. You talk to those guys, a lot of them, they get two training days a month. And they usually divide that up. We're going to go shoot one day. We're going to go do tactics another day or vice versa, depending on what the availability of the range or their train locations. And I say, you know, well, you know, when you went out last, did last training, what did y'all do? Uh, well, we went out and we we, we did a couple, you know, you know runs. You I know. got a drill off of Instagram and we tried it. Out. Yeah, it, yeah, I shot, you know, shot this one drill or you know, when you talk about tactics training, we did a couple warrants, you know, entries and uh, we talked about the one the one warrant we did last month, you know, because a lot of them they don't have, just have a whole lot of reps and a lot of real life experience, and you know that was that was pretty much it because we're either only have a half day of training because I've got to get back to filing cases. You know, or I work deep nights. I'm here in the middle of the of the day. I'm tired. I got to, you know, like it's dangerous for me. You know, so again, it, it, there's no perfect answer. You, you, if we did, we'd already came up with it and, you know, wrote a book and retired by now. If we could have done that, but there is no perfect answer. How do you do that? How do you solve that problem? It's, it's inherent to each team, but the, the training and selection is, is just paramount. And when we put on these schools for the TTPA and people come in, they say, I'm like, okay. And I brought this up earlier. Uh, you know, you had teams uh, come in. You had guys out of 28 of them when we were doing a hostage rescue school. Um, only one of them had been to previous hostage rescue training. But yet everybody else that was there was part of a SWAT team but had never been to formal mm-hmm. documented hostage rescue training in their career. And yet they're on a SWAT team and they're asked to perform those operations. And yet – they haven't been given the keys to be successful. And I think the guy who was the most exper- most experienced, if you use that term, in that group wasn't even the one who had 
been through. No. Yeah. No. The, the guy that had been that had received training, he had been through the advanced SWAT school with us, which is one day of hostage rescue training. It's not even – it was just an introductory to, you know, of, of different operations. It wasn't really even so much like a training class. Uh, we had a, we had guys that had been on from three to four years. We had one guy, I think he was 17 years was he had been in and out of SWAT. He he left, promoted, came back, but that was his that was his first documented hostage rescue training, and all those years he'd been there. And, I, and and I'm you know you're surprised by that, and so you're like, how do you what do you do about that? Well, you can't do anything about other. Right? And again, not just sit there and throw you know because we make our mistakes and do all that, but there has to be some kind of you know understanding that hey we got to do better we we got to do this and the training is, is just so important and if they're missing that on hostage rescue and we all can agree that's the highest level of threat incident we could be on is a, is a hostage rescue operation and if that's falling by the wayside in training what else is in the selection process um, we have a selection school and it's obvious when someone has done a lot of police work, made a lot of decisions under pressure. And when you put them in that selection school and you put them in the shoot house and have them make decisions under pressure, you can see their foundation and how they've worked in patrol. And we are fortunate because we're a very busy department. So each one of us have been in a patrol uniform and have went to high stress calls one after the other, having to make high stress decisions. And those things build through experience and then they show up in our selection process. It's not a school to, to nut cut or to um, initiate. It's a school to see how you react when you're tired, how you react under pressure and make decisions. And I think that is a, a gift that we've improved over the years in our selection process. No question. Yeah, judging aptitude, you know, making decisions under pressure, like Missy said, or even adaptability. If if you did something one way and maybe it was fine, I'm going to tell you to do it a different way now, and let's see if you can make that adjustment. Or can you make decisions on the fly and call those audibles as well? Yeah. And has there been a difference in the caliber that you've seen over the last couple of years with SWAT team members that are being trained that you've been a part of in teaching? I don't think there's any doubt about it. I think it's, it's a multi-pronged thing. One – you have patrol rifle now. Back when I came over, it was just getting started. It was in the stages, and nobody and nobody had been through patrol rifle. Maybe just like one group. And so when we came to SWAT, you had to learn how to use a, a you know a M4 type platform gun. They had to show you how to clean it, how to use it, because nobody had one. Nobody had one in patrol. Now these guys are coming in. They've been carrying a patrol rifle for a lot of them most of their career. You know, some of them five, six, seven years. So they're way ahead of you know anywhere we were. I can tell you that right now. They are, and they're better shooters because they've already built in. You know, and we have a pretty good patrol rifle program now. You know, just like anything else, there's always faults, or there's always guys that can't get into it, or whatever. But as a whole, our patrol rifle program is really good. They teach them good basic fundamentals. So when they come to us, you're not trying to. Have start to, with foundation you're not starting on grounds like for all of us we started ground zero with sergeant newton you know sure. <laughs> yeah and they did a great job with us and uh but you know we had to do that and so they walk in as a whole ahead of where i was when i came over i can tell you that right now because at that time unless you were in swatted narcotics there was no warrant training there was no other training on the department other than narcotics or swat you know, we do the CRT training now. These guys, we go out with the Love Field guys and do things with them. When we all came over to SWAT, nobody did that. And so there are more officers on this department now that are afforded more training 
than than they ever have been. That doesn't mean that it's enough. There's always going to be more. But yeah, that, that, that so that there is a no doubt that they're ahead. That selection school is the greatest thing we've ever accomplished over there, as far as a division, in my opinion. And I had very little to do with it, other than agreeing that I think it was the best thing to do. A lot of people put a lot of work into that. And what it does is it allows you to see them in the atmosphere. What Misty was was talking about when you are tired, when you're worn out, when you're you know fatigued. You know it gets everybody. You're nobody's immune from it. And uh, you see how they make decisions. You know, are they? Do they get? Do they get grouchy? Do they get antsy? Do they just start just tailing off? Like, look, I can't. We, we got to have you strong here. We've been out. I mean, there's been days we've all done it where you've been here. You don't even go home. You know, you just try to sack out. And I remember after July seventh, twenty sixteen, I did twenty seven days in a row. I mean, a lot of us did. Yep. 20, I mean, I mean, every day. I mean, you were just you would go home, see your family, get some sleep, and come right back to work. And then, then the riots in twenty twenty. I think we did seventeen days in a row. I think is what we did. And uh, you know, and that that second night, yeah. 10, you know, 12, 14 hours. Yeah, yeah. We went home for four hours and came back and did it again. And that yeah. second night was even longer. And I think I did twenty nine thousand steps. My watch told me that first, eighteen miles on my feet. Yeah, the second day. yeah. And they're just like, isn't is just insane? And how do you replicate that safely? It's hard. You know, but the school is the best thing we can do there. And what it does is it gives you an idea of what they're capable of doing, maybe just a, a window into that, but also gives them a window into what we're asking them to do. Because throughout the years now, we've had people come up by Wednesday and go, you know what? I thought this is what I wanted. Or I thought I knew what y'all did. I was wrong. I don't, this is not for me. And I respect that. That's fine. That isn't, there's no shame in that, but it gives them an idea of what's going to be asked of them. And then when they do make it over, I tell anybody that comes to my squad the first, I'm like, today is the day that I expect the least amount from you. Every day going forward, I expect more out of you because you're learning. You're getting better every day. And so today's your easiest day. And there's that old saying with the seals, no, the only easy day was yesterday. It's very true here. You know, today I expect this out of you. Six months from now, I'm going to expect more out of you. And then a year from now, you're going to expect that much more out of you. And I've had many of them come back and go, man, I can't imagine what we looked like when we first came over. Or they see the new guys. They go, did I look that bad? I'm like, oh, you look worse. You know, when you came over. <laughs> you know, they, they look better than you do. But, no, they've had two hundred. you know, it, it's, it's amazing to see that progression. And I appreciate people coming back and going, hey, this was good for us. So that school has been great for them. And then even the ones that are not selected, they got a good week's worth of training. Sure. And so they go back and they go, you know what? I need Take to do to the better. Streets. They do. And they come back. And I've had many of them come back. You know what? I, I moved my sling or I moved my mag pouches or, you know what? I now have a mag, you know, in my bag up front or, or what, you know, whatever the case may be. Or like, hey, that little trick that you taught me about, you know, the sights or whatever. And, it, and it's great to hear. And so – it helps them, you know, there's that ripple effect going down range with them too. So it's a big thing. But training and selection is key because you can have all the great toys in the world, all the great equipment and all that. And, and it comes down, it is software over hardware. That is the biggest thing. And uh, I think that's, it's, it's been, when you really need them to be great, that's when it'll show up. So let me make sure I'm on, for our listeners really, and understanding correctly. We start with a very solid foundation as patrol officers. Then we put people through a selection school. And then once they're here at the SWAT team, they're combining all of these unique experiences and expertise. And you guys go out and evaluate each structure that you're going to hit specifically and make a plan for it. Is that, am I have it right so right. far for our listeners? Yes. And then from that specific plan of gathering 
um, data and analyzing the structure, it is proven successfully that once we choose to do a dynamic or no-knock warrant, it has been safer for us. Would you? Is that some? Is that Absolutely. a fair assessment? Absolutely. Yeah. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that in my experience, in probably everyone's experience here, there are bad situations we've probably avoided by running dynamic warrants. And like you said, if the bulk of our work is warrants, and probably eighty to at least eighty, probably more like ninety, ninety-five percent of our 90, warrants yeah. are dynamic. Well, then, and we've only had one shooting in thirty years, then. For us, something's going right right yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and it, what you can't quantify, you can't put a number on is ones you don't get into, right? Yes. That, that number, yes. you, that number is just out there in, you know, in space. You're like, well, how many shooting did you not get into? You don't know. I know that a couple, uh, I think it was two years ago, they took a three month uh, quarter of the year for us and looked at all the operations that we, or did in that three months. I think we recovered like 57 firearms in three months. That's just what we did. That's not including what patrol, you know, they take off however many guns a day. I mean, it, it's not like they're not available to them, okay? And when we talk about we have not got, we've only shot one person in, in almost about 30 years inside a structure. I think on a dynamic warrant, we've only been shot twice in those 30 years. Now, we've been shot at many, many, many times on surrounding callouts. Okay. So, though we've get, been involved in more lethal force shootings on surrounding callout operations, that number is small compared to how many times we've been shot at. Maybe we got the APCs have been shot at. We've had, you know, they've shot up, you know, across the street, hit the houses behind us. And that goes back into the whole idea where, you know, you're having to worry about the people around you. And yet we still take that person into custody. You know, even though they've shot at us, mm -hmm. because we, you know, it is not about going and applying force just because we can. We apply the amount of force needed to solve this problem in the safest way possible. And again, the lack of shootings therefore shows that it is, it is an absolute, you know, process that we go through each and every time to try to mitigate all those dangers. So, part of this, and we've heard it in the past. I know. Uh Ron McCarthy was big on it when he brought up, you know, why are we servicing a hazardous warrant service over marijuana or something that had a lesser punitive, I guess, uh, part, part of this in here, right here in this article from, from the NTOA is it, part of it is the service of a no-knock warrant for the preservation of evidence. And I know for our listeners, we'll have uh, Matt Baines and and then probably another special guest with them, with them both, but uh, to speak on behalf of the narcotics view of this. But uh, for us, this this is not our primary concern, right? But what is your take on that, and what is your point to the comment on here regarding that no knock for evidence? Well, and that I alluded to earlier is that you know if you look at what. Texas law says about, you know, the no-knock clause or the ability to do it is to, for the preservation of evidence or because there's a higher potential risk to the safety of the officers. Mm -hmm. No doubt that, that the detectives, a lot of times, you know, the reason why we're there is to serve a warrant for them and not always that they have an arrest warrant. A lot of times it's just a search warrant because they cannot 
you know, the suspect's not going to give you his name and, you know, date of birth, and obviously, and I understand that, you know, and that's fine. No big deal with that. You have, and for people who don't understand is that when we take into account, you know, obviously we want to try to help the detective, you know, solve, not solve, but help their, further their case, you know, by, that's why we're there. We're, we're an extension of, of the department. We're trying to help them solve crimes, you know, put people in jail and do all this. Never want somebody ever, ever heard anybody walking in and going, we've got to do this because we've got to get to that marijuana or to that, you know, cocaine, the dope or whatever. Never heard that. Now, that is a byproduct of what we're doing. But everything has been driven because we're trying to do it the safest way. You know, nobody there is going to lose any sleep over if 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 a, if a bag of weed got flushed or something like that. You're trying to help them with their cause and trying to help them with that. But we want to get everybody safe. And so it has always been since I've been there, the driving force is how do we do this safe for us and for them? And again, it, you know, if you the data shows that it is working, that we're doing it the right way and that people are safe. And so when people, when, again, they have an agenda, right? This, this is written from that perspective that they have an agenda and they're trying, they're trying to make it sound like, look, it, the dope's not worth it. They don't need to do these kind of operations because we don't need to try to rescue the dope. Well, okay. We agree with you, but we're not doing it for that reason. We're doing it for our safety. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that's one of the things that just wears me out about how they do this. They they purport it off to being, we're trying to save you from yourselves. Kind of like your point earlier that they th- lump everybody together. We're trying to save you from yourselves because you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Like, well, no, we're doing it for the right reasons, which is safety of us and everybody involved. You're doing that. You're, you're cherry picking what's written in law to use that as, well, that's, that's the motivating factor. And it. it's not. It's not, not at all. Right. And I'm sure... I'm sure narcotics has a uh, motivating factor. Uh, I'm not going to speak on behalf of them. You were in narcotics, Dan. Sure. You would yeah. you would know more of that. But I mentioned uh, just a second ago that later on we'll have a second half of this, and I'm going to let Matt and them get into that aspect of it. That's that's their area of expertise. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's a misconception, um, even on a surrounding call out uh, type warrant. Um, I think that we we fall short when we look at that and say, okay, well, the search warrant, just like you mentioned, if there's not an arrest warrant, then we don't have, we normally, they're described by features, right? Just sure. inside a physical description, yeah, search warrant. Yeah. So, but then if we don't go with the arrest warrant, then sometimes we do these, uh, surrounded call outs, which you're still announcing. You're just not making entry. You know, you're making entry based on your terms. And most of the time it's dragging people out of there. They come out on their own. Right. But, uh, more than likely, there's no evidence left anyway. But either way, we conduct the operation. So, and I think that was one of the pieces of that was that this is very selective to individuals uh, conducting a no-knock warrant for the preservation of evidence. Specifically speaking, in there about people stealthily making entry into a home uh, to, to to do such. And even our narcotics group does not do that. You know, they. Yeah. I mean, it's the same for yeah. we're the same practice no matter what at that doorway. Uh, as as we begin the breaching, the announcing's going on on every side of that structure. Yeah. So, but anyway, I just wanted to hear the perspective on that. Again, you know, n- not being there with these other agencies, seeing how they perform all their operations, but you sit back and look at you know the vi- what the video shows or what the evidence shows, you're like, well, I don't think that's you know the best way to do that. 
and I have no problem people doing that to us. That's fine. You know, again, like I mentioned earlier, any plan that's worth, you know, it'll stand up to scrutiny. And so if you're doing it the right way and you're trying to put your best foot forward, it's fine. You know, that's, that's what makes plans great is that people look at them, we carve them up, we decide, hey, this is better than that because that's the ultimate goal. Is I'm not here for any kind of, you know, award or anything. We're here to win. We're here to get everybody safe. Right. And, you know, and we're, not, we're not here for awards or anything like that. We're here to solve problems. Well, yeah, you're talking about safety. And so you have this politically motivated agenda, blanket statement. So let's look at it from the other side. What's all our, our alternative? Um, a knock and announce? So talk to me about safety and knock and announce. When you're, what's in a reasonable amount of time to stand in front of a door and wait for somebody inside to make a plan or grab a weapon? Well, because that's all alternative, right? Sure. Yeah. Well, there's so talk there, about there's it. always little variables that you could do, like knock and announce, right? And you're breaching the door and you're announcing. Okay. Well, you're just behind cover. Or you're, I'm sorry, you're behind concealment. You're not behind cover. And so to think that standing at the door jam, you know, and trying to call people out that they don't—that's their house, more likely. They're not more familiar with that location than you are. So you are in a position of. You know where I am. They know where I am. They know where we are. Okay, we're not. We're not. We're not forcing them to make a decision one way or another. They're doing whatever they want to do, and so you can do that tactic to some degree. But it's much like like a port cover. We won't send people up there to do a port and cover on a window by themselves without an entry team going inside the structure. Why is that? Because if they do that and they decide to fight that port and cover team, where can you go? Right, you have to. You're, you're just you're just standing there. You're, standing there in front of a window. You're standing in front of a window, and it's, and it's the same thing with the door. So when we talk about. I would never send an important cover team up there on a BP or barricaded person or surround a call out without an entry team compressing on top of them because you're ma- you're dividing up his battlefield. Putting that pressure that. on. He has to make a decision to fight the the window team or the entry team. But when you're not put, you're not going in there and dividing up his battlefield, if you will, and forcing him to make a decision, putting him that OO loop reserve or inside an act. He just can keep. He can decide. Okay, I don't want to go to jail today. I'm going to fight back. He just starts shooting at that, and because you're not, you're not causing anything else to go on in his in his world, he tees off on you. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about, and I think it's funny to say, well, would you ever have a Portland cover team go up and do that? They go, no, never. I said, why? Because they're just standing there. They don't have any cover. They're done doing. I'm like, well, what are you doing? On, what are you doing on preaching old? Yeah. Uh, Why did you do it on the Breonna Taylor deal? It's the same thing. You know, Missy talks about alternatives. So if we're not doing this, what is an alternative? Well, really, what they did in Louisville on the Breonna Taylor deal, that was the alternative. That was the alternative, right. And that's what they did, and look how it ended. It it snowballed into um, probably some bad decisions and some bad outcomes. Yeah, they had one breach point. You had other windows, because I don't know, did they do port and covers on the NAR? I don't know. Again, I'm not Mm -hmm. commenting about what they didn't do. We're just looking at what they did do, and they did a breach point. And they fired, you know, all those rounds at the breach point, and then the guy ran around to the parking lot and fired more rounds into the, the apartment. Mm-hmm. And, and even his own, I heard his own testimony. He says, I, I just saw a muzzle flash, so I just started shooting at it. Well, I think this, the suspect only shot one round, so the, sus, the muzzle flash he was seeing was his own guy shooting at the door. Yeah. He was shooting in that direction. So we talk about alternatives. You, you can have breach and hold. You can have, you know, and, and when we talk about, again, we go back dynamic, no knock. You can be dynamic in the first room, and then you can start slowing you down. You can fe- you can feather that you know the accelerator back and forth. Your throttle. We can speed up. We can slow down. And when teams are they're experienced and they have 
you know, they have seniority, not say seniority, but they have they have leadership and they have experience and people that know what they're doing in there. They can pick up that speed. They can slow down that speed. You know, we talk about it all the time. It's quick through the door and you power back down you handle the room you're coming into it's a methodical search and we don't just run through the house just running in there and jumping in there and yelling at people it's a systematic approach each room as we come to it, and we're clearing each room individually as you come to that and another reason why it's good to have lots of officers so you know if you and i clear the front room and the next two come through y'all go to the next room and then the people go by you and clear that room and that's how that's how you do it safely is that you are you're not having to jump back out there and run down in there and i, th- I think well, a lot of times these small times teams smaller teams that are reduced in manpower it's a, it's an issue they're like hey i've got to go clear multiple rooms because we don't have enough bodies to do that and i mean look at us how often do you go clear more than one or two rooms with on most operations you don't have to because you come in and I clear a room, by the time we cleared it and double checked, make sure everybody's good, everybody's biased, it's just over with, right? Yeah. And so I think that's, you know, so the, the techniques that are available to them, you know, the breach and holds, the, you know, whether they want to use shields and all that, it's all there, it's available to them, but what, are they training with it? Are they, right. have they ever done that? And they go, well, have you ever done what you're suggesting? Well, we have. Okay, when? Okay, it was April. <laughs> this is November or something like that. You know, it was a long time ago. Right. It's like you have to have experience. So when things do go wrong, because they always do, no matter what, even even operation that didn't that didn't have any things to go, no really problems with it. Always something grows right. You know, it's always something is. You have to have that experience to be able to make up that distance or to get here, to get there. And I think that's what, you know, a lot of times those options are there. But, again, back to the training, back to the selection, that either they're not comfortable, they're not experienced, or they don't know how to get to that that other option. And you, so you're, you, know, you talk about alternatives, and, and by no means are they saying you can't do this right, but it's, it's it, uh, we go back to that statement, but we come back to this and say what are our, our, what are our alternatives and uh, you spoke about inherent danger earlier, right? So when we have a uh, a surrounded call out, um, there's an inherent danger, right? And and if you go back, and I can think of a handful right now, just off the top of my head, of uh, of uh, tactical officers, whether they be narcotics or SWAT, it really doesn't matter. But tactical officers making entry into a home off of a surrounded call out uh, has ended tragically. Uh, and because of what you mentioned, individuals have enough time if they decide that they want to fight, they will secrete to points of domination. Everybody knows in their house where they can where they can see a doorway where they or most most people would if they don't. Maybe I'm just weird, but you you know the points of domination in your own home, and that's where these officers are being struck. I can think of one right now off the top of my head, and and it's unfortunate and it's tragic, but that's another reason. You know, if 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 this becomes a um, you know, a, a, a supporting factor to others to lend their tactics to, you know, we're, we're kind of hurting ourselves. And then you went and you talked about evolution and then the, then the whole entire tactical arena is going to have to take an, an evolution in another direction because otherwise there's, we have the equipment and this goes back to the, the, the availability and the ability, um, uh, as well. But, you know, when you're fighting another man on his own turf, uh, and we're giving people time, you know, when we talked about OODA loop earlier, great thing. The psychological overload of a dynamic no-knock warrant is exactly that, right? As opposed to now these individuals are no longer, their OODA loops no longer being broken. Now they're starting to get further and further into the process where now, now we're all the way down to act. 
And that's where we do not want people is at act. Because then that, that goes back to what Danny was talking about, about the suspect making their own decisions. And now their actions will dictate exactly what we do from that point forward. So, No, I agree. I'm, yeah, absolutely. Matt, you used the words systematic approach. And I would say it's a systematic um, – I think the whole process is systematic. Would you agree with that? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's a, there's a concept of operations that everybody is working towards, you know, completing that mission. And every one of them is different, you know. So when we use the word dynamic warrant or no-knock warrant, I think people, listeners who have never done this type of work, have a impression that it's something that it's not. And I would say and it's, it's a, an efficient way to attack a structure. But take our listeners through that systematic breakdown of a dynamic warrant from beginning to end, real quickly, like a list of things that for all the way from uh, doing the research on the structure all the way to the, the debrief. Sure. Well, whenever it comes up that you have a you know, operation that needs to be run, and they say, we need to go to this location, and we're looking for this person, or we're looking for evidence. Or, I mean, we've, we've had everything. As y'all know, we've had everything, you know, from murder suspects to murder weapons to drugs to, you know, cameras, you know, VC, you know uh, uh, tapes, you know, CDs, whatever. Okay, that's the reason why we're there is for this. Okay, now we'll go look at it. You know, look at the structure. Is it an apartment? Is it a house? Is it barricaded? Is it up on the ground? You know, we have, you know, we have the, the, the suspect assessment and the location assessment. Third strike candidate, you know, is he on probation? Is he on parole? Has he fought and shot at people before? Is he, you know, what has he been down before? Is he, is he retaliated against police before? All that kind of stuff, you know, goes in play. It's a, it's a mindset, right? And you have a guy who has never been arrested before versus a guy who's been in the pen several times. And he knows if I get arrested again, I will never get out again. I would die in prison. Yeah. Is, is that a factor? Absolutely it is. So those are things we try to, you know, you can't always identify 100% who's going to be in there, but you you do your best. And then you look at, you know, the, the location. And we all know those burger bars are set in there for what? To keep us out, okay, because it's, it's, it's a drug location. And one of the first things I always ask detectives is, is, is are they living there or are they just selling out of there? And they go, nope. They show up, they sell out of there, and they leave. So, I mean, it's not like they're keeping people from coming in there and stealing things because there's, there's nothing in there except for just when they're there. And you go back, you look at all that, and again, it goes back to what y'all were talking about earlier is the experience, to having that, you know, those those reps, you know, through training and through live operations to be able to come in and say, okay, there's a cage there, there's a gas meter there, there's there's no fence back there, this house is so close to this, it's an upstairs here, you know, whatever the things is, and then you identify problems, and then then here comes the experience again. How do you solve those problems? How do we solve that problem? How do we solve this problem? Josh, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? You know, can we get this done? Can we get that done? And then we come in, we start putting it on the board, you put that you put a footprint, is what I call it, of the of the location up there, and then we start all over again. Okay, these are the problems that we recognize, this is what we've found out. How do we beat this? How do we solve this? Is this the best way to do this? And then you start doing that. And then you start tasking out those assignments. Y'all are gonna do this, y'all are gonna do that. And then you let them come up with what they believe to be the best way to do it. That's what that you have your trust in your people to do their job. And then they come in and you talk about that. And then you say, How does that work in concert with what they're trying to do? Because 
your sale, their sale, this sale, my sale are all working individually, but in a group effort to go, to accomplish the mission. And then we go start working on that and go, is what you're going to do interfere with what I'm going to do or vice versa? Do I need to, how, where do I need to put you to do this? And then you talk about that, you discuss it. And then when everybody has agreed upon that, then it, then you're in a better chance for success because everybody has the same mission. Everybody has the same goal, what we're trying to accomplish. And then they go forward with that. And then you brief it, you talk about it, then you push out and you go, you know, and you go out and you run the, uh, the operation. And then as, as, if it goes, whether it goes as planned or not, you solve the problems, you finish it, you secure the, all the persons there, you make it safe for the detectives to come in there and to start working on their side of it, which is the evidence. And then almost immediately, once you're secure and safe and everybody's got, you know, situational awareness, we're not having anybody come in and come, you know, that may be trying to do something to us on the perimeter, we can go up and start kind of hot washing is what we call it there on the scene. We could have done this. I wish we'd have done that. This really worked good. Remember that. Let's use that one next time. Let's don't ever do that again because it didn't work. And then you just start trying to add that to your toolbox, if you will, how you how you get better at things. And then we could go back and have a more formal debrief about, hey, you know, looking at this, how did what your sale do compared to what we talked about earlier? And like, well, we thought this would work. It did not. Here's the reasons why. Or this worked perfectly, and here's the reasons for why that. Because believe it or not, we go back to some of the same structures multiple times. I went to one house on Puget nine times, you know, and so we've been to, you know, we <laughs> I remember that. House. Oh yeah, yeah. And so <laughs> the, there's ones. one down right now on Oak Cliff that we've been to. That's probably the new one that we've been to the Strictly. most times. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's it. And I have been on the front side. I have been on the side <laughs> on the back side. I have been in, in. You know, I've gone in every assignment on that Draw operation. Plan from memory. Yeah, I've done it many times, and yet. And when if they call tomorrow and say we need to hit that place tomorrow, it might be a totally different plan. Well, we will go back and we would do the exact same thing again. We will go by and look at it. We yeah. will make those we will make those assessments then because yeah. something may have changed. We get there and sometimes there's a there's a cage door that wasn't there or it's gone or they boarded up windows maybe because of us previously. All that and you rework that whole problem again. And again, it's not that cookie cutter approach. And then we come in because. You may not even been in this division when we hit it last time, or you you know you may have done it last time and now you're doing it, and so y'all can talk. Say, hey, that shrub is a lot closer to that window than you think it is, so you need to be aware of that. And again, that's that teamwork and that coming together to solve that problem. And we do that again. We go back through it again. So it's a it's it's a it is a method of operation. It is a it is a systematic approach that we're going to go through the same thing. So if some reason in the middle of the of the operation planning. Danny got called away, and he says, "Hey, I need you to complete this deal. Where have you? Where are you with this? This is where I am. With 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 within just a few conversations, I can step right in, take over from where you are, go back over what you already done. It'll make sense to me because again, we know what we're doing. You can apply that, and then you can continue on. It wouldn't like we got to blow the whole thing up and start over from scratch again, if that makes sense." Do you document it so you can go back and reference? Oh, oh yeah, we document, take pictures, and then like you know, you bring up that address. The first thing we do is go back what. Pull up the pictures from last time. Where is this different than last time? You know, do this. And I, you know, and you know, you know, a long time ago we didn't do that. In the last however many years, we've really done a really good job of that. And now looking back, I'm like, God, look at all the places we wish we documented sure. beforehand. And I've gone back, and I remember there's, there's an apartment complex up on Northeast Division. And I said, take a picture of the of those shrubs, and that box is one of those big electrical boxes because unless you walk up there and get right next to it, you cannot see how it is in relation to the building but we took a picture of it and i'll be dang the last time we went back out there we pulled that picture up and go that right there shows exactly again that 
you know, putting that little extra effort into it, you know, to try to help yourselves out, you know, further line, down the line. We, uh, we've kind of covered a lot. I'm sure. <laughs> I yeah. think the list, the listeners are, they're going to be wading through a lot of this. So I thought maybe just kind of summarize some of the things and you all chime in with kind of the bullet points of what we talked about here. So no knock warrants, no knock warrants being specifically a clause in the warrant that gives law enforcement the ability to use a tactic, not necessarily describing exactly what the law enforcement agency is using. So running dynamic, most common for no knock warrants, uh, training and selection were big points that got brought up. So it seems that the NTOA is making a blanket statement right now and applying it to all law enforcement agencies across the country saying that this is no longer a good practice when really what we're doing is we're looking at isolated incidents and we talk to other teams and we evaluate ourselves on our own teams and realize what we're seeing in these isolated incidents are really that they're isolated and not necessarily common practice. And it's unfortunate that they had the outcomes that they did. Anything else I'm missing? No, I think that's about it. I mean, it's a double-edged sword. I think they're doing it to protect officers in a inconspicuous way. And it's, uh, it's just, again, it goes back to what you said, the blanket statement and comfort. And that from your statistics and 30 years of Dallas Police Department, um, it's, it's proven that stats show it's overwhelmingly safer for officers based on sus- the structure. And suspects. That dynamic, using dynamic warrants. Yeah. Is that? Absolutely. No, there's no doubt. Again, we're giving our data. Uh, there may be somebody else out there that has data just totally contrary to the thing. But we, we all agree we have a large selection of data. This is not just every now and then we're running warrants. This is a, the Dallas Police Department has run a tremendous, and not just the SWAT team, the narcotics you know, sure. division too. There's a lot of warrants to get run every every year in this city. And uh, there's no doubt. And if I could, I'd have something. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sure. I'll just say uh, we do everything we can to reduce or mitigate that. You know, the danger. There's a risk in any course that we follow, but every lesson of history tells us that the greater risk lies in appeasement. This is what some well-meaning people refuse to acknowledge. When we give in to pressure, when their policies of accommodation is appeasement, if we continue to accommodate, continue to retreat, eventually we will face the ultimate demand. What then? We just refuse to conduct any kind of operation because of the potential danger that someone may get hurt? When the anti-police woke mob goes back and tells their people that they know what our response will be, they know that we are retreating under pressure till one day we will not have any more ground to give up. They will simply not just quit. As long as they believe they can manipulate the situation the narrative, they will keep coming. And I think that's, you know, a little bit of Ronald Reagan. In the words of uh, Joe, it's a good way to wrap this up. Yeah, Matt, uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks for sharing your perspective as a professional and as a member of the Dallas SWAT team. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, Matt. Yep. Thanks for your service and thanks for having the courage to speak up about this. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Glad to be here.